It's Tech Fighter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 273 for January 1st, 2012. Happy New Year. This week, gazing at the Tech Fighter Worldwide Naval, Premier Elements makes you a video producer, Microsoft almost gets rid of Internet Explorer 6. And in short circuits, opinions about SOPA and Anonymous. Volkswagen limits employee email in a good way. And farewell to point-and-shoot cameras. You know, normally this would be a Tech Biter Worldwide Vacation Day. We hardly ever do a program around Christmas or around New Year's. But the Tech Biter Worldwide website changes this year, and I thought it would be worthwhile to talk about them. A little navel-gazing, perhaps. The changes won't be as obvious as in some previous years, but there are more changes than usual in the 2012 annual site refresh. This year, the typefaces will look different, the page is wider, but the email is narrower, and the underlying code is HTML5 instead of XHTML transitional. What the heck does all that mean? Well, typefaces... It's been possible for several years to specify typefaces that are not among the dozen or so web-safe typefaces. These are the faces that, much like the web-safe colors, can be assumed to work on even the most out-of-date browser. Specifying typefaces other than those still requires creating a specification that works for Safari, a specification that works for Internet Explorer, a specification that works for Chrome, and a specification that works for Firefox. Even so, the technology and the browsers have advanced to the point that I think it's worthwhile to make the change. Those who insist on using an antique browser will still see everything. They just won't see it exactly the way I intended. Because of these changes, the cascading style sheet, or CSS, has more than doubled in size, but that's really not a significant problem. The style sheet is loaded just once, and even at double its original size, it's still just 15 kilobytes. Okay, so how about width? For the past several years, TechBiter has been just slightly shy of 800 pixels wide. This is true even though most people now use screens that are at least 1,024 pixels wide. Many use monitors that are 1920 pixels wide or even wider, dual monitors or even a trio of monitors. Simply owning a wide monitor, though, doesn't mean you'll run your browser full screen. I think it's very risky to assume anything more than about a 1,000 pixels. And that's a size that works pretty well for some, well, most, actually, portable devices. So the number I've chosen is 1,000 pixels. It's becoming a fairly common assumption among website developers. This means that images can be larger, too. The thumbnail images, instead of being just 200 pixels wide, are now 300 pixels wide, and full-size images expand from the thumbnails to be as large as 1,000 pixels. So you'll be able to see things a little better. HTML5? Well, the HTML5 specification replaces HTML4 and the XHTML transitional specification. HTML5 is backward compatible with HTML4, which is something that XHTML2 would not have been. 
XHTML2 has been dropped as a proposed standard. It has been dropped because it would have caused a lot of websites to fail. Most browsers support some aspects of HTML5 today, although there is no good reason to convert old pages to the new standards. It's important to begin using HTML5 standards for new development. At least, that's what I think. For this reason, all new weekly programs will comply with HTML5, but pages dating back to 1998 will retain their old widths, their old graphics, their old typefaces, and their old production standards, which were HTML 3.2 for some years, HTML 4 for a few years, and XHTML Transitional for a few years. I said all current browsers support at least some aspects of HTML5, so I've selected the features that are supported by those browsers. If you're using Internet Explorer 6, any version of the now long-dead Netscape, Firefox 4 or earlier, Opera, any version before 9, Chrome before version 11, or Safari before version 5, well, it's time to upgrade. The browsers I've just specified are antiques. IE6, for example, is more than 10 years old. The final version of Netscape, which was version 9, was released in 2008. Firefox 4 was released in March of 2011, but then Mozilla adopted a rapid release development cycle and was at version 9 by the end of the year. And so it is with the other browsers. It's important to keep your browser up to date, whichever browser is your favorite. The full HTML5 standards won't be released until 2022, and yes, I do mean a decade from now. But browser support and development of the standards are proceeding more or less in sync. And you've probably noticed by now that there's a new theme. You will notice shortly that there is some new music. It was actually a race against the clock, and the final music selections weren't made until early Christmas morning. And by early, I mean like 5.30 or so. But I knew the twangy guitars had run long enough. The main problem with searching for new music is that so much is available with Creative Commons licensing. Finding something I liked for the theme was easy, and it still has some great guitar components. You'll notice perhaps the primary difference in the bridge music between items. In radio, this is called the bumper, but it's used there mainly to make you think you're getting some entertainment when you're really just heading into or out of a commercial break. Now, the commercial break may last for five or six minutes. Here on TechBiter Worldwide, there are no commercials, and the music is simply meant to separate the reports. And instead of just four variations on a single twangy guitar theme, I can now select from some 15 components, each with a slightly different mood. So, I hope you like the new music and the updated look. Microsoft has finally driven a stake through IE6. Almost. If you report a problem to the IT help desk at a very large 50,000-employee company, the first response will be, what browser are you using? Regardless of what you say, the response will be, well, this website application is certified for Microsoft Internet Explorer 6. Have you tried that? IE6? Really? 
This is decade-old technology that even Microsoft tells people not to use. At long last, Microsoft seems to be getting serious about this, though. Starting in January, Microsoft will force Internet Explorer 6 users to upgrade. Sort of. In late December, Ryan Gavin, Microsoft's general manager for the Internet Explorer business and marketing division, said that the company will automatically upgrade Windows customers to the latest version of Internet Explorer available for their PC. For XP users, which is, by the way, another bit of decade-old technology, that means IE8. For everybody else, it means IE9 or later. Gavin said we'll start in January for customers in Australia and Brazil who have turned on automatic updating via Windows Update. This is similar, he says, to the release of IE9 in 2011. Australia and Brazil. Good targets. There are, of course, those who oppose automatic updates of any sort, even though they have proved to provide timely and reliable security updates for applications such as Firefox and operating systems such as Linux, Gavin says, and I concur, by the way, and I quote, The web overall is better and safer when more people run the most up-to-date browser. Our goal is to make sure Windows customers have the most up-to-date and safest browsing experience possible with the best protections against malicious software such as malware. End quote. Gavin and I may differ slightly regarding the security of IE9, but we certainly agree that IE9 or for XP users, IE8, is far superior to any previous iteration of IE. The only problem I see is that, as usual, Microsoft wimps out at the end, again quoting Gavin, one of the things we're committed to as we move into auto-updates is striking the right balance for consumers and enterprises, getting consumers the most up-to-date version of their browser while allowing enterprises to update their browsers on their schedule. The Internet Explorer 8 and Internet Explorer 9 Automatic Update Blocker Toolkit prevents automatic updates of IE for Windows customers who do not want them. So, if you decide not to wear your seatbelts on the Internet, Microsoft gives you a pass. You know, sometimes I wish that Microsoft was more like Apple. Apple makes a decision, and the Apple fanboys and fangirls just fall into line. Microsoft makes a decision, gets a little pushback, and then backpedals. <gasps> oh, we didn't really mean it. You want to keep your buggy old browser that exposes you needlessly to threats? Oh, okay, fine, sure, that's good. That's go ahead, go that's fine. Just go ahead. We'll just sit over here in the corner and eat glue. It's okay, go ahead. Firefox more or less automatically updates the browser. Chrome automatically updates the browser, no question. Apple more or less updates automatically all of its applications. All of its applications. Operating systems such as Ubuntu Linux automatically update themselves and all the applications. So here's a message to Microsoft. Okay, sure, some people are going to say that you're heavy-handed, but come on, don't just talk about it. Do the right thing. Until you do, that big company I mentioned earlier will still have its IT support staff tell people to install IE6. A 
Adobe Creative Suite 5.5 is, without question, one of the most important applications used to communicate in print, video, and audio. By creating applications that work together, Adobe has made it possible for creative professionals to use content created by one application in another application. But Adobe has also expanded the powers of creative software for non-professionals, and Premiere Elements is a great example of this. Adobe Premiere Elements 10 is the more basic version of Adobe Premiere. Both the cost and the complexity are considerably less than those of the professional application Adobe Premiere. If you have a previous version of Premiere Elements, the update price is just $80, or you can buy a new installation for $100. Add Photoshop Elements for just a small additional fee. If you want the professional application, upgrade start at $180, the full application at $800, and you may also want to add other features from Creative Suite 5.5, such as Production Premium, $400 for an upgrade, or $1,700 for the full application, or $129 a month for month-to-month -month subscriptions, or $85 a month for annual subscriptions. Adobe has lots of choices. The new features in Premiere Elements 10... Support for 64-bit systems. Great. Ability to modify color, saturation, highlights, and midtones in your videos, just like you do in the still pictures. HD quality videos can be saved to standard DVDs. Sharing is supported on YouTube and Facebook. And you can export to AVCHD format. I call this real-life editing. If you are an amateur or home videographer who creates programs for friends and relatives, the Elements version is more than sufficient for your needs. You would need the professional version, the CS 5.5, only if you're called on to create programs for broadcast. Or if you have been a broadcast professional and you want those high-end features that the professional version offers. For the home user... Premiere Elements will prove more than satisfactory. Premiere Elements tries its very best to speak plain English. The right side panel of the organizer view, for example, offers the plain English options that require no transition from TechnoGeek. Organize, fix, create, and share. Anybody gets that. The Fix tab has a drop-down menu for full, quick, or guided photo edits, or for video edits. Wait a minute. What's the deal with photo edits? We're talking about a video editor here. Well, the organizer is used by both Photoshop Elements and Premiere Elements, and those who purchase Premiere Elements also receive a 30-day trial version of Photoshop Elements. <laughs> Adobe assumes that if you're in the market for a video editing program, you may also be somebody who wants to edit, organize, and improve still photographs. <laughs> of course. On Christmas Day, I decided to see what I could do with a bit of video for my Canon G12. The G12 is a point-and-shoot camera that offers an option to shoot video. That's what I took with me when we went to younger daughter Katie's house for dinner. I returned with 36 video clips that ranged in quality from totally unusable to marginally effective. So, my challenge was, without reading the instructions, by the way to see if I could create a video that would be sufficiently interesting that people would not fall asleep while watching it. You'll see that video on the TechBiter Worldwide website. I had Premiere Elements installed on a notebook computer. It's a 64-bit system with a relatively slow processor, just a dual-core i5, with 6 gigabytes of RAM. 
This is adequate for editing HD video, such as that produced by the camera, but it means that rendering takes a very long time. After eliminating the worst video clips, I organized the remainder in what seemed like a reasonable sequence and then set about fixing the in-points and out-points. What I discovered was that I generally do a pretty good job of stabilizing the camera before I start shooting, so most of the in-points were fine. Where I had to do most of the trimming was at the out-points, the ends of the clips. One of the clips had good video at the beginning and near the end, but the middle part contained a long, boring selection. Just removing the middle wasn't an option because that would have created what's called a jump cut. What I needed was some other video between the two pieces that I wanted to keep. After trimming away the middle, I dropped another short piece of video in, and problem solved. Half an hour later, that's right, half an hour later, I had a four-minute video, but it had a cacophony of a soundtrack, disjointed conversations, and a lot of background noise. So, I turned down the audio track and created a new soundtrack by using the same one-minute audio selection four times. Note, if you're creating a video, repeating the same one-minute audio selection four times in a row, not a good idea. But it served okay for my little demonstration project. Next, I selected the option to upload the file to Facebook. Rendering the video took about 45 minutes, and the upload itself consumed another 20 Facebook then required about half an hour to render and downsample the video so that it would work as streaming video. The entire process, though, from the time I started downloading the camera's video until the time the finished production was available on Facebook was less than three hours. Except for one title scene and one non-cut transition, all of the scene changes are simple cuts, and that is by design. Although Premiere Elements provides many fun and sometimes useful transition effects, the best transition is almost always a cut or a crossfade. Just as the best typography is invisible, transitions shouldn't call attention to themselves. If somebody says that transition was, wow, that was really impressive, or that typeface you used, hey, that's really a pretty typeface, you've done something wrong. The bottom line, video editing for people who aren't video editors. What's clear from my little test video is that Adobe Premiere Elements has all the features that non-professionals need to edit, improve, and cut together video clips from vacations, parties, and other events. If you're willing to spend the time, you can improve lighting, colors, and contrast on a per-clip basis. You can add a complete soundtrack to the video. When you're ready to share, Premiere Elements makes uploading to YouTube, Facebook, or Adobe's own Photoshop.com as easy as selecting a destination and clicking a button. For more information, visit the Adobe Premiere Elements website. You'll find a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com, and there's a 30-day free trial, too. In short circuits, warning, opinion ahead, SOPA in GoDaddy's mouth. The domain register GoDaddy.com announced its support for SOPA, the ill-advised Stop Online Piracy Act. But when thousands of customers who were annoyed by that position threatened to move their domain registrations elsewhere, well, GoDaddy relented, more or less. GoDaddy says it is no longer supporting SOPA, but that doesn't mean that it is opposing SOPA, which is what it should be doing. 
Instead, GoDaddy has gone from being a supporter to being neutral. Warren Edelman, GoDaddy's newly appointed CEO, says that it's important that all Internet stakeholders work together on this. I quote, Getting this right is worth the wait. GoDaddy will support it when and if the Internet community supports it. If you're waiting for that, you're going to have a long wait, fella. Among the large and respected organizations that oppose SOPA are the Electronic Frontier Foundation and Mozilla. You'll find a list of close to 20 other organizations on the TechBiter Worldwide website that are also opposed. And although TechBiter Worldwide is certainly not as big or well-known as most of the organizations listed there, we're also opposed. SOPA is the wrong solution to a problem. The bill is being positioned or spun as being a tool to shut down pirates in rogue foreign states. Nothing could be further from the truth. SOPA is a bill that was written by lobbyists for the benefit of their Hollywood clients. Had this legislation been in effect 10 years ago, many of today's popular Internet services, YouTube, Facebook, and many others, would not exist. That's because SOPA would hold a service responsible for bad actions by users. If one YouTube user posts a bit of copyrighted video, the feds could swoop in and shut down YouTube. The entire operation, the entire YouTube operation. What's wrong with the system we have now? If one YouTube user posts something that's copyrighted, the copyright owner notifies YouTube, YouTube removes the offending video, and cancels the account of the offender. Easy. Simple. You'll find a variety of links on the TechBinder Worldwide website that take you to other places where SOPA is discussed by the Electronic Frontier Foundation, Mozilla, ReadWrite Enterprises, Wikipedia, CBS News, and PC World. And you might find this interesting. Among the people who are opposed to SOPA, Nancy Pelosi. Okay, if you're a Republican, then, you know, she's poison. And Ron Paul. Nancy Pelosi, Ron Paul. Ron Paul, Nancy Pelosi. Same side of the issue. Opposed to SOPA. The list could go on and on, but the main point is this. It's bad legislation that's being pushed by lobbyists who propose using essentially a nuclear weapon to kill a mosquito. Let's go after the mosquito and allow the rest of the Internet to survive. Remember the 1990 Volkswagen ad campaign for Harfignugen, driving enjoyment? Well, now the automaker says it wants its employees to have more fun when they're off the clock. No more checking your corporate email account with the company-provided BlackBerry. That's because the devices will function only from half an hour before the workday begins until half an hour after it ends. The change applies to unionized workers, but apparently not to managers. This is a very interesting concept, assuming the company is implementing it for the reasons stated, making sure that employees obtain a better balance between work life and home life, and not just as a cost-cutting measure. Another German company, Deutsche Telekom, says that it expects workers to deal with company-related messages only during work time, and that it does not expect them to work during their off hours. One problem with being connected to the office 24-7 is that the line between home and work becomes blurred. The phone rings, you answer it. 
An email arrives, you read it. Volkswagen and Deutsche Telekom seem to be on the right track. And this seems to be an idea that would be welcome in the United States, too. This is going to be one of those stories that's going to seem obvious once you've heard it. Serious photographers will continue to use digital SLR cameras, or maybe four-thirds cameras, micro four-thirds cameras, or even a real high-end point-and-shoot camera. But the basic point-and-shoot digital camera is doomed. The market research company NPD says that smartphones are replacing basic point-and-shoot cameras for both still and video images. The key consideration here is that the smartphone camera will replace basic point-and-shoot models, the cameras that are the equivalent of the old basic Kodak Instamatic. According to Liz Cutting, the executive director and senior imaging analyst at NPD, there's no doubt that the smartphone is becoming good enough most of the time. In addition to that, the fact that most people have their smartphone with them all the time means that more pictures are being taken than ever before. According to Cutting, consumers who use their mobile phones to take pictures and video are more likely to create photos and video using those devices when capturing spontaneous moments. But for important events, single-purpose cameras or camcorders are still largely the device of choice. Camcorders and lower-end point-and-shoot cameras appear to have lost the most ground to smartphones. According to NPD's retail tracking service, the point-and-shoot camera market was down 17% in units, 18% in dollars for the first 11 months of 2011. Pocket camcorders were down 13% in units, 27% in dollars. Detachable lens cameras increased by 12% in units, 11% in dollars over the same period, with an average price of $863. Point-and-shoot cameras with optical zooms of 10 times or greater grew by 16% in units, 10% in dollars, the average price there, $247. So what this may mean overall is that digital imaging is one of the primary causes of statistics. What do you do when you list two members of the Beatles who are dead and you got one of them wrong? Well, in my case, I updated the TechBiter Worldwide website with the correct information and a note about the wrong information. But I allowed the podcast with the wrong information to remain. In the great Soviet encyclopedia, pages were simply removed, new pages inserted to correct history. I decided to leave the error in place and correct it later. Well, now is later. The only trouble with that approach is that the error occurred on the 18th of December, last year's final program, and my first opportunity to make the correction on the podcast is today, New Year's Day, 2012. In talking about the Beatles movie Help, I said that two of the Beatles are dead, John Lennon to an assassin, and Paul McCartney to cancer. Well, I'm happy to say that Sir Paul is still very much alive. I should have written that George Harrison had died. Note that I didn't say I meant to write George Harrison. I didn't. I meant to write Paul McCartney. Except for John Lennon and Ringo Starr, I really could never tell the Beatles apart anyway. But for some reason, I remembered that McCartney was the one who died. One of the first things you're supposed to learn as a journalist is to check things out. The old saw is this. Your mother says she loves you? Fine, but check it out. It would have been very easy for me to check that out. It's not hard to perform a Google search or check Wikipedia. 
but I relied on my memory, which obviously was wrong. So now I can say that two Beatles are living, Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr, and I'm pretty sure that I got that right. I certainly seem to be full of opinions this week. The shady anonymous group of crackers struck again around Christmas, breaking into systems operated by think tank Stratfor. The company gathers intelligence data for businesses and government agencies such as the Departments of Defense and Justice. The group said it had stolen thousands of credit card numbers and other personal information belonging to the company's clients. The intent, according to one member, was to steal money from accounts and to give that money to charitable organizations. Stratfor says that it has reported the intrusion to law enforcement and was working with them to investigate. Anonymous claims to have downloaded 200 gigabytes of data from the company. One of the victims, by the way, the victims are real people. One of the victims is Alan Barr. A total of $700 worth of donations were made in his name and with his money to organizations such as the Red Cross, CARE, and Save the Children. Barr, who retired last year from the Texas Department of Banking, will undoubtedly get his money back, but the inconvenience isn't trivial. What surprises and distresses me is that even high-tech media folk seem to refer to these thieves as hackers, and not as crackers, which is their proper name. Hackers are honorable. Crackers are thieves. Anonymous may be well-intentioned, but so was John Brown in the years before the Civil War. And they are still crackers and thieves. Anonymous is not a group of hackers. <laughs> Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.